All right, turn with me, if you will, back to the book of Philippians. I actually have notes this morning, so we may be here for a while. All right, so um, any time that we come to one of Paul's letters, it's a, or any, any letter in, in Scripture, it's important that we uh, kind of look at, at some of the background, some of the context, so that we understand what Paul's saying, so we can understand when he says the thing that he says and what context, he, context he's meaning those things, and also so that uh, we can um, understand why he's saying those things and what's going on. So uh, the author of this letter is obviously Paul. Um, the context that we find Paul in, in the writing of this letter, is he's in prison uh, for preaching the gospel. Um, uh, he had previously visited uh, the church at Philippi, or he had actually started the church at Philippi. Um, and we find that narrative around Acts chapter 16. Um, it's interesting because this is Paul, and he had, uh, on his second missionary journey, he had had a route planned, um, and he came to a point in his travels where he had every intention of going one way, and God gave him a dream and said, no, I, I really want you to go this way. I want you to go north and go up to Macedonia. Um, to the area of Macedonia, and Philippi is the, is the kind of central city in that area. Um, and, uh, you know, uh, church history scholars look at this and say, okay, this is Paul's first foray into Europe, albeit a very southern, southern part of Europe. And so the fact that us, most of us descended from European folks, have the gospel, we can go back to chapter Acts 16 and see God's sovereignty in sending Paul this direction, and then the gospel spread northward and outward from there. Um, and so, you know, uh, the church at Philippi should hold a very special place in our hearts uh, for that reason. Um, so this particular church, uh, we see them uh, mentioned not only in this book, but in several other places. We see them mentioned in uh, the book of Romans. Paul says that he had gathered, um, uh, in Romans 15, he had, he had mentioned that he was headed to Jerusalem with a gift that he had gathered from several churches. And one of these was the Philippians. Now they themselves were uh, poor and had, had suffered the loss of many things because of their adherence to the gospel, but still uh, God had done a work in their hearts that these were really generous folks. And they had, they had given a gift to um, the, uh, the uh, Jewish Christians that were in Jerusalem because they were having a worse time than the Philippians were. Um, we also see um, in the purpose that Paul's writing this letter is with Paul being in prison, uh, the church at Philippi had, um, had come up with a, a gift of some kind for Paul. So certainly maybe it was money, maybe it was some food, or I, I don't know what all they would have provided him with, but obviously Paul needed uh, some things being in prison. And so they take one of their church members, Epaphroditus, and they give him this gift and send him to Rome to go minister to Paul. And the plan was that uh, Epaphroditus would deliver this gift, would give a report to Paul about the church of Philippi, and would also uh, stay with Paul um, in order to, to minister to him while he's in prison. Um, unfortunately, at some point on this journey, or perhaps after he made it to Rome, Epaphroditus became very, very sick, and he, he very nearly died. Um, but by the grace of God, his health was restored. He was able to deliver this, this uh, gift to Paul. And so Paul writes the letter uh, to the church at Philippi, 
and sends it back with Epaphroditus. And so part of the reason that he, that he sent this letter was to explain to them why Epaphroditus is coming home so soon. Hey, he got really sick. I'm good here. I've got Timothy with me. I've got other folks with me. So we'll send Epaphroditus back to you guys and send them with this letter. He also wanted to tell them that I hope to be able to come to you and, and come back to Philippi and minister to you and, and fellowship with you once more. Um, and that if he's unable to, then he probably plans to send Timothy in his place. Um, and uh, the other thing that we find as a reason for writing this letter is there was division in the church. So for all of the things with Philippi that was going well, um, as far as their generosity, their, their standing firm in the gospel, uh, they did have one, one big issue going on, and it's division. Um, and towards the end of most of Paul's letters, he'll name off a whole list of names. And some of these folks, you know, like, uh, like Luke or, or other folks that get mentioned at times, we have a lot of background story to that. Some folks, their name just gets mentioned and we don't know anything else about them. Um, and, uh, you know, you got to think, being an early Christian, having been ministered to by Paul, you would be excited in most times. That, hey, Paul mentioned me in the letter. I got a shout out from Paul. Uh, I can't imagine the folks mentioned here are too excited that Paul mentioned them because he mentions two women by name that have some argument, some issue that, they're, that they are at odds with one another about. And uh, that's, you know, other than a couple of other folks related to the situation, he doesn't mention anybody else. So go with me to chapter 4, verse 2. And we'll look at this issue of division in the church. Now, this may have not been the only issue of division. There may have been more points where there was problems among church members Obviously, this one was a big one because he mentions it by name. I don't really recall anywhere else in Paul's writing where he calls out people by name um, in, in this sort of manner. You know, certainly he called out folks uh, like Demas that had left the faith, and he mentions him by name um, in a negative light. But this is really the only instance I can think of where he calls out a problem in the church. So, chapter four, verse two: I urge Yodia and I urge Syntyche to live in harmony in the Lord, or to agree in the Lord. Indeed, true companion, I ask you to help these women who have shared my struggle in the cause of the gospel, together with Clement also and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. So, we don't have much information. We don't know exactly what this argument's about. From the few verses that we have, the couple verses that we have, we can kind of make some uh, uh, conjectures or, or inferences about what was going on. So <clears throat> the fact that there's no mention of that one of these women's theology was out of line, we, we, can, we can conjecture this was not a gospel-related issue. Okay? Um, it wasn't something that rose to that level where they were disagreeing about the Trinity or, or uh, uh, salvation by faith alone or anything like that. So it wasn't that. Um, we don't see any mention of sin that needs repenting of. So while their disunity in the church is certainly leaning towards the point of being sin in that it's causing disunity, um, I don't necessarily know that either one of these women particularly sinned in this situation. Now, it's possible that one of them sinned against the other and asked for forgiveness and repented of that, and the other one just wouldn't let it go. 
that's a possibility. I don't know. So, but there's not any obvious, blatant, outward sin that's taking place. Otherwise, Paul would have definitely mentioned that. But what we do know is that whatever this disagreement was between these women was a big deal. <laughs> it was a big deal, so much so that Epaphroditus, who had traveled all the way from Philippi to Rome and almost died on the way, felt necessary to tell Paul this. Okay, so, you know, you got to think, Paul's in prison. Epaphroditus is making his way to go minister to him, and certainly he's giving him several good updates about uh, what, what's going on in the church at Philippi. Um, but you have to know he hated to have to give this bad news. But it must have been a big enough deal that he mentioned it and said, hey, we do have this one thing. We've got these two women, and they just will not get along. And so um, Paul urges them uh, in the Lord to be unified. Now, having this in mind, having this background in mind about these two women with this, with this division that was going on in the church, can you imagine those two women sitting in church as this letter is read and all it's about is unity and they're sitting there sweating. Oh, good gracious. Paul knows. He's got to know. Paul knows. And we get to the end of the letter and you're like, yep, Paul knows. He knows what's going on. He's not happy about it. And so, you know, you have to think, you know, in that context, hopefully these two women got their act together, humbled themselves, rectified whatever this wrong was between them and went about in unity. You would have to um, at this point. We see that this was a big enough issue that Paul had, had noticed that them having the, the Word to them, them having the Word preached to them, that they need to be unified, what wasn't quite enough for them to get past all this. And so he asks somebody uh, that he calls true companion to help them out. That you, Somebody else in the body needs to come alongside these women and help them work this out. Now... The, the, the Greek word there for true companion is Sisygus. It could have been that this was some dude's name. Um, it could be a nickname. Or it could be a, 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 a word that, that he's using to describe somebody that they would know who they are. Um, it could also possibly be Epaphroditus. I mean, everything we see mentioned about Epaphroditus, this guy is faithful. And he, he is a really good dude. And it could be that he's sending Epaphroditus back and says, I want you, true companion... True, true fellow uh, worker in the faith. I want you to help work this out. We don't know. We don't know who the identity of that guy is. Um, but we do know that both of these women were working together. They, it says that, um, that they've shared in the struggle uh, for the cause of the gospel. And it says that their names are in the book of life. This wasn't a salvation issue. It was, but it was a big enough issue that Paul felt necessary to address it. So flipping back to uh, Philippians 1, 27, so, uh, or Philippians chapter 1, we see Paul open the letter like most times where he greets them, tells them what's going on, um, and he begins in verse 3 with, I thank God for you, I'm always offering prayer for you with joy in, in my every prayer for you all in view of your participation in the gospel from the first day up until now. That word participation is very important. It's going to show up several times. The Greek word is koinonia, and we have, we've looked at this word before. Um, sometimes it's translated participation. Sometimes it's translated uh, 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 fellowship. Okay? And this, but this is a, a deeper fellowship than what we have in the, the fellowship hall. You know, we go have a meal together. That's great. That's wonderful. That's not really capturing the meaning of this word fellowship. 
Um, later down, uh, he refers to them as fellow partakers of the gospel. That's the same word. So he's, he talks about this koinonia, this fellowship that they have, and then says you are our fellowship ease, if you will, that y'all are all participating in this fellowship that we have with one another, and this is, comes from Christ. Then he talks about his own personal situation in verses 12 uh, through 26, talking about, I'm in prison, and I'm in prison for the gospel. Um, and uh, uh, so this is my situation, and, and, and gives his take on it, uh, that he's kind of glad that he's here. So he's been thrown in prison in Rome. We see that because he's thrown in prison, that there are several other Christians in the area that are encouraged by this, and they say, okay... Paul believed in this strong enough that he was willing to go to prison for it. And so now that he's in prison and he's been taken off the field, if you will, I'm going to step up and I'm going to start preaching the gospel. We also see in verse 15 that for some reason some people were preaching the gospel out of envy and strife. And I have no idea how you do that. Um, obviously, whatever message they were preaching is honoring and, and to Christ but their motives for doing so were to cause Paul to, uh, uh, to feel bad. <laughs> to, and, and Paul says, hey, listen, verse 18, I don't care why they're preaching Christ, but Christ is being preached. So what does it even matter? And he says, what then? Only that in every way, whether, whether they're doing so, whether they're preaching Christ out of pretense or whether they're doing it from true motives, Christ is being proclaimed, and this I cause to rejoice. Um, this causes me to rejoice. So, Paul gets on down and, um, to verse 27 and begins his instruction. and says, Only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. This word worthy is a word that we've seen before. I think when uh, Joey was going through the book of Ephesians, it talks about living a life or walking in a way that is worthy of the gospel. Uh, this Greek word is the word axios, like where we get the word axis, that something rotates around. And uh, it, it was literally meant like um, scales that you would balance. So the idea that Paul is trying to communicate is that your life, your manner of living could be put on one side of the scale and the gospel on the other side of the scale and that they would balance. Um, now, certainly we cannot live a life that is worthy of the gospel in and of our own selves. Okay, we can't, and Paul's not trying to say that you, need to, that you need to earn your salvation some sort of way. You need to do enough good stuff that the gospel makes sense. The gospel, as far as being fair, is never going to make sense because the gospel is so uh, overwhelmingly good that there's no way that we, could, that we could, on our own, balance our lives with that. But Paul is saying this should be your goal. This is the way that you should think about your life now that you're in Christ. He's not talking to lost people, telling them to be good enough that they become saved. He's talking to saved folks, saying, hey, now that you put your faith in Jesus Christ and the righteousness of God has been granted to you by the free gift of God through the gospel, then your life needs, you need to strive for your life to add up to that, to try to balance with that. Now, he's going to mention two things that, uh, in, in explaining, okay, how do we even go about this? Because, you know, it's, it's so hard to try to even find a place to start. And so Paul's going to give us a good place to start in this particular context in the church of Philippi. <clears throat> so he says, Only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come to see you or whether I remain absent, that I will hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, 
and striving together for the faith of the gospel and in no way frightened or alarmed by your opponents. So he wants them to stand firm for the gospel, not waver from the gospel, not fall into false teaching, um, not, not shrink back from the preaching of the gospel. And he wants them to do so in a particular way. He wants them to do this unified with one another. So Philippians 4, we see that that Yodia and, and Tenshiki were, were, were uh, they were both striving for the gospel, but they were not doing it unified. They were not of one mind, of one heart, of one love, of one spirit. They were not doing that. And so Paul is urging them to do that. Uh, he's urging them to do so and not be alarmed by their opponents. Um, so this word alarmed, uh, or uh, if you have ESV, I think it says frightened. This is the word for stampeding horses. So you have a whole group of horses or, you know, uh, or whatever that, or some sort of herding animal that is now in a frenzy, in a stampede. And so thinking about herding animals, um, uh, any of you guys watched uh, nature documentaries where you've got, you know, the African uh, uh, Sahara and all that, and you've got, or you've got these um, wildebeest or antelope or whatever that are in a herd. And then here comes the lion creeping up, and, and the lion eventually gets close enough that it's going to strike, and the animals become frightened, and they stampede. Now, if they all stay together in a herd like they're supposed to, then most of the time the lion is not going to be successful. If they all stay together, and they go the same direction, and all of that, the lion can't figure it out. But what happens if the lion is able to frighten them or whatever predators after them, they will scatter and, and begin to just go wild and stampede. And usually the lion's able to pick one of them off, right? This is the idea that Paul says, I don't want you to be frightened by your opponents. I don't want you to see these Jewish folks that are persecuting you or the government, the Roman government that's persecuting you or these false teachers. I don't want you to be frightened. I want you to stay together. I don't want you to stampede and just go wild. We have to remain unified. And this, this unity, so verse 28, uh, which is a sign of destruction for them, that's your opponents, and, but is a sign of salvation for you, and that too is from God. So unity is important enough in the church that it is a, it is a sign of our salvation. The fact, the fact that all of us from all different walks of life um, and all, all different circumstances and situations, all different people, all different ages can come together and be unified in the gospel is a sign of the power of the gospel. It, it's a sign of our salvation. Um, it's also a sign of destruction for those who would oppose us. So those who would persecute the church, and they see in, light of, in, in the face of persecution that the church is remaining unified to one another in love, that's a sign that what they're trying to do is not going to be successful. Um, this made me think about, uh, you know, most of us here have young kids in some way, shape, or form, and they will try to divide you and your wife. They, they will, you know, y'all have all experienced this. If you haven't experienced it with your own kids, then you probably did it to your parents when you were a kid, that you want something, and you go and ask mama, and mama says no. And then... You go and ask daddy, and daddy didn't realize mama said no, and dad says, yeah, whatever, you know, get out of here. And so now you've divided and conquered your parents, right? But if your parents, as parents, you know, 
with these little rugrats that you have in your house that you have to be unified with one another, otherwise they will overcome you. Okay? So that's, that's kind of what I think about, that it is so important because the church, we have so many enemies. I mean, just, just turn on the news, and you'll see enemy after enemy after enemy after enemy. It should not be so among us. We should not have enemies with one another in the church. Uh, we should remain unified in this. Our, 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 uh, the fact that we are unified with one another is a sign of our salvation. It's a sign of what Paul said in the very first part of this letter that, uh, that he is, uh, verse 6 of chapter 1, he's confident in this very thing that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion. Now, so often we want to pull that verse out of context and say, okay, well, that's talking about me and my personal life and the thing I'm trying to accomplish I know God's going to do. But that's not what Paul's talking about. He's talking about this entire church. And they have this division that's obviously big enough that everyone knows about it. And they've got to be worried, okay, is this it? Is this it for the church of Philippi? Is this going to be it? Is this wonderful thing that we've had together, are we going to end up splitting over this? Are we going to be ineffective because of this? You know, by the grace of God, this church was started. The gospel was brought to us by Paul, and several of us put our faith in, in Christ under Paul's teaching, and then this church formed, and, and God's doing amazing things through us. He's allowed us to be generous to other believers. He, you know, he's done several things in striving for the gospel in this church. And is this going to be the it? And Paul's encouraging them and saying, no. No, by, by, by the power of the gospel to maintain unity among God's children, this is not going to be the end for you. And he's confident that God, who started this thing, who started this church at Philippi, is going to bring it to completion. He's going to complete what he started. Um, <clears throat> so, uh, verse 29, For it's been granted to you for Christ's sake not only to believe in Him, but also to suffer for His sake. So, <clears throat> we see at the end of 20, 28 that this salvation, uh, this destruction of our opponents, this salvation to the saints is a gift from God. And then he expounds on that and says, yes, God has, has granted to you. This word, uh, the root word, is the same word we use for grace. So if you want to Get your little pencil and write, God has graced you with these two things. He's graced you with the gift of faith. Okay, so Ephesians 2, 8, 9, and 10. For by grace you've been saved through faith, not of yourselves. This is a gift. The faith is a gift. So He's graced you with faith, and we can be really excited about that. And so I'm so glad that God saw fit to grant me repentance and faith. I'm so glad that God saw fit to have the gospel preached to me and allowed me to understand the gospel, allowed me to be of a humble heart that I would accept the gospel. Um, and that's something we can be really excited about. This next word isn't so exciting. It's the word suffering. Um, that God has also graced us with the chance to suffer for Him. Now, Paul understood this. This, this is some deep water that Paul's looking at. Um, suffering is what separates the men from the boys, if you will. Um, and Paul recognized this. You know, Paul, in telling his own testimony, he says that uh, God, uh, God redeemed him on the road to Damascus for two things, to preach the gospel to the Gentiles and to suffer for his name. 
And Paul looks at his own suffering of his life and says that uh, he describes it as filling up what was lacking in Christ's suffering. Not, not that Christ did anything inefficiently, but that, that Paul's suffering is a continuation of the suffering that Christ suffered. And that is also true for us. Paul's not in a different category from us. I mean, he may have wrote half the New Testament, but he's not in a different category than us. We are no better than Paul, and suffering is something that we've been granted. Um, and so, okay, well, what, what does this suffering look like? You know, I mean, certainly there's things that we suffer through, and so Paul's going to explain it. He says uh, that uh, uh, we've been graced, we've been granted, we've been given the gift of being also to suffer for Christ's name, uh, verse 30, experiencing the same conflict which you saw in me and now here to be in me. So what is this conflict? What, what, what is this suffering that the Philippian church saw? Well, this is back in Acts 16 where uh, we see that... Uh, let me flip back there. I went way too far. All right, this is... Uh... All right, we see the first part of Acts 16 where, where he gets that vision to go to, uh, to Macedonia and eventually Philippi. Um, we see verse 14, um, this woman named Lydia, who was the first person converted there. Um, and uh, then, of course, the church ends up growing and growing from that. But immediately, as soon as he makes it to the city, we see that, uh, that Paul and Silas run upon this uh, slave girl who was telling fortunes. She was possessed by a demon or, or something like that. And... Uh, they eventually get on Paul and Silas's nerves bad enough that he turns around and says, Hey, demon, get out of this woman, and, and, and uh, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And at that very moment, the demon came out. Well, this made the people making money off her really mad, so they run to the city officials and say, Hey, these men are, are throwing our city into confusion. They're proclaiming customs which are not lawful to either the Jewish folks or the Roman folks, we need to do something with them. So they end up beating Paul and Silas out, and then, then they throw them in jail, in the center of the jail, and, and put their feet in stocks. And, and how do Paul and Silas uh, respond to that? They start singing praises. And then we see an earthquake come, and, it, and, it, and uh, through all of that, the jailer at this jail ends up coming to faith and his entire family's baptized. So very memorable story. This is what the Philippians saw. This is right at the beginning of the church where, okay, this, this is how this is going to go. Apparently, apparently preaching the gospel is not going to be popular around here and it's going to get you thrown in jail and beat. So Paul says that, and we'll go back to Philippians. Paul says that this same conflict which you saw in me, he's referring to Acts chapter 16, and that you now hear to be in me, in that Paul is in, in jail in Rome. So not sure if, Persecution had quite made it to the church at Philippi yet. If it hadn't made it there yet, it was at very least coming. And Paul's saying, hey, this, this is what's coming. And it's important that you're unified when, when, when this comes. So uh, <clears throat> now we need more explanation by what Paul means by being of one mind and striving together for faith in the gospel. And so uh, chapter 2 um, is a continuation of this same thought, so kind of ignore the chapter breaks. They're not, the chapter breaks are not holy or sanctified. They just added in there to help us find our way around. So chapter 2, continuing that thought, he says, Therefore, and then there's this if, uh, if clause 
that's the rest of chapter verse, uh, chapter 1. So we're going to skip past that and move on to what Paul's complete thought is. Therefore, skipping to verse 2, make my joy complete by being of the same mind. So he's referencing back up to 127 where he told them to conduct themselves in a manner worthy of the gospel so that, so that he would see that they're one spirit, one mind, uh, striving together for the gospel, skipping on down. Verse 2, make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. Um, so this word, same mind, uh, this is a word we've talked about a few times here. It's the word phreneo. Um, and it is, it is a mindset. It, it's, it's, it's not so much that we agree on every tiny little thing. It, it's so much that it, it's... Like, this word's kind of hard to describe, really. I think uh, John Piper even had to make up a new word. He called it attitude set, which is not even a real word, but he said that. But it, but it, is, it is this entire mindset, this, this way of living, this code that you, that you go by that, that, that governs your actions and that your actions move and, and are, are, are consistent with this mindset. So he's saying, I want you to have the same mindset. Everyone be on the same page. And then... Uh, uh, he says, uh, so we're back in verse 2, um, same mindset, same for Neo, maintaining the same love, um, united in spirit, having, having one spirit being together with one another, and intent on one purpose. And that's the same word, purpose is for Neo. It's, it's, I wish they would have used the same English word, but they didn't. So he's saying y'all have the same mindset, the same for Neo, and there's one for Neo. Okay, so it's not like, it's not like, we have one mindset here, and then you go down to the road to another Bible-believing, gospel-centered church, and they have a different mindset. It doesn't work that way. It, it, there's, there is one mindset that Paul is wanting us all to adhere to. It's a specific mindset that Paul is wanting us all to adhere to. And so, skip down to verse 5. Well, uh, let's uh, yeah, skip down to verse 5. So, have this attitude, that's the same word, Phreneo, mindset, purpose, attitude, have this attitude. This is the one phreneo, the one mindset that he's wanting us to have. And it's that that was in Christ Jesus. Have this attitude in yourselves, which is also in Christ Jesus, who, and now he's going to explain what that is. He's going to explain what, what do I mean when I say I want you to have an attitude or a mindset like Christ. That Christ who although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, and being made in the likeness of men, being found in appearance, uh, uh, in the appearance as a man, being humbled, uh, he humbled himself, becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So I want you to see this, that Paul is, is describing what we would call in, in fancy theological language the condescension of Christ, meaning that, that Christ is highly exalted at the right hand of the Father. He's, in, he's the firstborn of all creation. He's preeminent among all things, Colossians 1, preeminent of, of everything. And yet, for Christ to do the work that God had laid out for him, for Christ to be obedient to God's command, it required that Christ humble himself. This is the mindset. This is what true unity requires. It requires that you humble yourself. 
So we see Paul describing this, this, this uh, condescension or humiliation or whatever word that you want to use of Christ in a stepwise fashion. Okay, so it starts off in verse 6. We have Jesus Christ who, who is equal with God. Okay, and I can show you a multitude of verses that, that, that would, that would, uh, that would uh, communicate that truth to you. But instead of, instead of claiming and holding on to that title, Christ uh, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped or held on to. Now, this does not mean that Jesus gave up His Godhood, His deity. That is not the case at all. But Jesus had a mindset um, in order to to uh, forego everything that would go along with being God Almighty, the God of creation. Um, and so that's step one. So he's come down just a little bit. Um, oh, flipped the wrong page there. Then he emptied himself. So all of the rights and privileges that he had of being a son of God, he emptied himself. And instead of being uh, master and Lord, he became servant or slave. He took the form of a bondservant. So that's another step down. And then he was made in the likeness of men. That's another step down. Jesus is God uh, fully and, and totally, and yet he was also a man. So he's taken another step down from, from godhood to manhood. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. So now not only has he humbled himself to being a man, now he has allowed... That, um, that earthly, fleshly body of his to be killed, and then the last blow, even death on a cross. A humiliating death. No dignity in that death at all. So we see Jesus setting this example of humility for us, and we see how God responds. He said, For this reason God highly exalted him and bestowed upon him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus communicated this truth to us several times when He said that He who exalts Himself will be humbled. He who humbles Himself will be exalted. So Jesus communicated that multiple times throughout His earthly ministry. Um, and that's exactly what took place with Jesus Christ Himself. So we're called to be humble. Uh, we're, we're called not to just find some degree, some shred of our own human ability to obtain humbleness, but we're called to do so. There's too many papers up here. We're called to do so in a manner consistent with Christ. It's not possible for us to be as humble as Christ because we didn't start off as high as Christ. We're just humble men, um, and yet so much of our lives are bent towards exalting ourselves, trying to, trying to find ways to lift ourselves up. And yet Christ, who had everything, who is everything, who everything in the world has been placed under His feet, His entire life and ministry is one of, of uh, uh, exampling humility for us. So... You look at this and you're like, okay, well, that's a really tall order. There's no way that I can be humble like that. I mean, of course Jesus could do it because He's Jesus. Um, but how am I supposed to do this? Well, that's where we get back to verse 1 of chapter 2. And this is this if clause. So Paul's giving us this really tall order that I expect you guys to humbly 
be unified with one another in the gospel. Um, and as with anything that we see in Scripture, when there's a command, when, there, when there's a high challenge for you to overcome, there's a equipping for you to overcome that. And that equipping comes in the gospel. So these uh, four things that are listed in verse 1 that uh, Paul uses as our, uh, as our ability, our, uh, these things empower us to be able to achieve this unity. If there is any encouragement in Christ... So we know this if word is more like a sense word. It's not, he's not saying, well, I mean, is there encouragement in Christ? Is there not? It's, it's rhetorical. We know that there's encouragement in Christ. Okay? We know we have the Gospels that we read, and we see, we see what Paul just talked about in the condescension of Christ that, and the obedience of Christ that we find encouragement there. Um, we find in the book of Hebrews where... Uh, it says that, that we don't have a high priest that can't sympathize with us because he was tempted in every way, and yet, yet in that way without sin. Um, so, of course, there's encouragement in Christ. Um, is there any consolation or comfort uh, in love? Well, go back with me to Romans chapter 5 and see if we have any love from God, any, any comfort that we get from love. So Romans 5 verse 1, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have the gospel, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Um, I still can't get past that verse, y'all. <laughs> we, uh, we've done so much to make war with God, with our sin, with our rebellious hearts. Um, and yet, God in His mercy and grace found a way to make all of that right, to make all of it go away. He found a way to create unity and fellowship with us. And He did so through the gospel. In spite of ourselves, He did, through, did so through the gospel and He made peace. Um, I just think that's incredible. So, through Jesus Christ, whom we have obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we exalt in the hope of the glory of God, and not only this, but we exult in our tribulations, knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance, and perseverance brings about proving character, and proving character brings about hope. And this hope does not disappoint. Greatest understatement in the entire Bible. This hope does not disappoint. Um, why is that? Because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts through the Holy Spirit, which whom He has given us. You ever seen a young child try to pour a glass of milk? It goes everywhere, right? It just overflows the top and gets all over the table and gets all over the floor. This is the picture that I have in mind when I see God, through the work of the Holy Spirit in our hearts, pouring His love out into us, um, like a toddler trying to pour a glass of milk and the bottle's too heavy and they pour it all over the place. Um, and he goes on. He says, For while we were still helpless at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one would hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for a good man someone might even dare to die. But God demonstrates His own love for us, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So, yeah, we have consolation of love. If that's not comforting to you, uh, then you don't know the gospel. I mean, that's just it. That, that is our consolation of love. Is there any fellowship of the Spirit? This is the same word, koinonia, that we talked about before. Is there fellowship of the Spirit? 
Um, we see in 1 Corinthians that we're all baptized into the same Spirit and uh, that um, our churches are, are formed. And the backbone of our church is this fellowship of the Spirit. So yeah, there's fellowship in the Spirit. This last phrase, and it says affection and compassion. Some of your translations says something else. It lists two things. These two words uh, typically are found together as one. And so I kind of look at this like one thing, uh, compassionate affection. Um, uh, Paul uses the same word for affection in... Get back to Philippians. Uh, chapter 1, verse 8. For God is my witness, how I long for you with the affection of Christ Jesus. Um, so yeah, of course there's love and affection. There's love and affection from, uh, from Christ to us, or, or love and compassion. Um, and then of course, when I think about God being compassionate, I'm brought back to a very familiar verse, Exodus 34, 6, where God says that He is compassionate, that He's full of mercy, full of grace, full of loving kindness and compassion. So, of course, all four of these things we have granted to us as wonderful gifts by the gospel. These four things uh, are encouragements to us and empower us to be able to love one another in unity, like Paul commands. Um, all four of these things come to God, uh, come uh, from God to us. And yet, each of these four things we are to take and give to one another. So not only are we encouraged in Christ, and, th and that is something that comes to us as a, as a blessing from God, we are to encourage one another in Christ. We, are, you know, we find someone you know, struggling for whatever reason, and you know, we encourage one another with, with the beauty of the gospel. We encourage one another with the love that we have that's been poured into our hearts, and we pour it into other people's hearts. Uh, we encourage one another with this fellowship that's been, that's been forged uh, uh, among us because of the power of the gospel, we encourage one another in that fellowship. We encourage one another with this overwhelming compassion that now that God first shared with us and now we share with one another. So uh, the gospel allows us uh, the power to be able to do this. Okay, so now we have very practical, uh, very practical examples of what this looks like in front of us. And, and Paul gives these examples to the church at Philippi, and certainly we could look around um, in the folks that we know and see, and we see people who do not do anything from selfishness or empty conceit. That's verse 3 of chapter 2. Um, uh, and we, we see that, uh, that... So we don't do anything from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, we regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not look merely on merely uh, look for your own personal interest, but also for the interest of others. So, chapter two, verse uh, nineteen. Paul's in prison. He's hoping to be able to come and visit the church at Philippi, um, but he says, uh, "But I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you shortly, so that you may also be encouraged." when uh, I learn of your condition. For I have no one else of kindred spirit, that's the same unity language he's using before, no one else of kindred spirit who will genuinely be concerned for your welfare. Um, that's verse 4 of chapter 2. Look not only to your own personal interest, but look to the interest of others. Timothy is this. Timothy is an example of this. He says, concern for your welfare. 
For they all, our opponents, seek their own interests, but not those of Christ Jesus. But you know the proven, but you know of his, Timothy's proven worth, that he served with me in furtherance of the gospel, like a child serving his father. Therefore I hope to send him immediately as soon as I see how things go with me, and I trust in the Lord uh, that I myself will be coming shortly. So Timothy is an example of how we should do this. And he's sending Timothy to this church so they can see Timothy, Timothy can minister to them, and they can look to him as an example of this is how we, this is how we be unified. This is the mindset that was in Christ Jesus. It's also in Timothy, and I want you to see it in him, that he's humble, that he's a servant, that he's looking out for the interest of everyone else and not his own. And then next, <clears throat> verse 25, I thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier, who is also your messenger and minister to my needs. So remember, Epaphroditus was sent from the church at Philippi, and he's trying to make it to Philippi with this gift and go minister to Paul, but he gets sick along the way. Um, uh, so verse 26, because he was longing for you all, and he was distressed because you had heard he was sick. This guy's too much. He's too good. <laughs> this guy is on his deathbed. And, and rather than being concerned about his own life, he's worried about the church at, at, the church at uh, Philippi and all of those people being worried about him being sick. Like this guy, he's, uh, I, I'm not made like him. <laughs> I'm not like that. I'm way more selfish than that. But this guy, is, he's trying his hardest to stay alive just so the people at Philippi won't be sad when he dies. And so Paul sends him back and he says, uh, For indeed he was sick to the point of death, but God had mercy on him, and not only on him, but also on me, so that I would not have sorrow upon sorrow. Therefore I have sent him all the more eagerly, so that when we see him again you may rejoice, and I may be less concerned about you. Uh, receive him then in the Lord with all joy, and hold men like this in high regard, because he came so close to death for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was deficient to me in your service. So Paul's asking these two women and this church as a whole that whatever squabble this is that they had, it does not rise to the level of importance to cause division among the church. Um, there's way more important things to worry about in chapter 3, Paul goes on about false teachers. they got that to worry about. They've got these opponents who are going to persecute them to worry about. they got Paul who's in prison. That's a bigger issue than this. Um, and they've got men like Timothy and like Epaphroditus who are mature enough in their faith that they are able, able to overcome uh, these uh, divisions and squabbles and all of that and be an example for the rest of the body. And so... Um, and then we've got people like whoever Paul's referring to as true companion that's able to, able to uh, get, uh, uh, walk alongside these people and help them to maintain unity. And this is what the church should look like. We should have Epaphroditus's and Timothy's in our church. We should have true companions in our church that, uh, that are working and striving to maintain unity. Um, you know, we've been very fortunate here to not have any terrible things that come up and divide us and cause us to war against one another, um, and that is by the grace of God. Um, and certainly we've had times where we've been close, and, and fortunately, through the means of grace, God has been able to avoid that and has been able to mend broken hearts and, and mend broken relationships in order to maintain this unity in our church. But it is not something that we should be lax about either. It's not something that we should that we should not think about 
because we're not currently experiencing anything like that that I know of. I, you know, I may not know of something, but but I think it's important that we that we meditate on these things, that we think about these things, and that we re- look at our own life and say, "Hey, am I being a Timothy? Am I being an Epaphroditus? Am I am I someone that someone could look at and say, now there's a person who's not selfish. There's a person who's who puts everyone else's interest above their own." Um, I think if we're honest with ourselves, hardly any of us would say that about ourselves. And if you are, it's probably because you're conceited and that you need to be humbled anyways. But, so I think it's important that we look at these things, but I think that it's also important that we don't become so incredibly overwhelmed by the, by the, the height and the nature of this command because we've been given the, the ability, the power to be unified with one another in this way, to have this mindset that's in Christ Jesus, and that power is afforded us by the gospel. In the first part of Ephesians, Paul says that we've been given every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places through Jesus Christ, and this is one of those spiritual blessings. This is one of the things that the gospel affords us, is the ability for us to be unified, and for us to be unified for the sake of bringing God glory, and for sharing God's love with one another.